Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with Brother Guy Consolmagno and the late Father George Coyne of the Vatican Observatory. He died in February 2020. And there's a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. People said they had a good time, that you paused at the right places. Right, I did. (laughs) And I said, I didn't say that, he did. Right, excellent. (laughs) I forget there was something about science fiction. It was awful, but yes. Hello. Hello. Yes. Oh, hi. Yes. You're talking about science fiction. I love science fiction too. <laughs> right. Oh, so okay. I was mentioning uh, uh, George is going up to uh, St. Paul in a couple of weeks. Oh. And I've got a friend, uh, Greg Kettner, who has the Dreamhaven Bookstore up there. Oh, same in so. in Minnesota. Minnesota, St. Paul, Minneapolis. I don't know exactly where it is. I've never been there. I just have met him at conventions. I'm not familiar with that bookstore. Um, oh. Are you Nancy? I'm Krista. I'm, I'm oh, going to interview you. Yes. Okay. Oh, oh yeah, you're the okay. interview. Okay, great. I'm, hello. <laughs> hello. You and know, you are in St. Paul, aren't you? I am in St. Paul. Yes. You have your snow boots on? Uh, well, I did when I walked in this morning, yes. Okay. <laughs> it's well, quite it's cold. Well, it's only going to be 68 degrees here today. Oh, so don't rub it in. You know, I had Mary Duria Russell on the show, but I've heard that at least one of you I read somewhere didn't like her because that book that was would be me. too sober, too no, lacking oh, in humor. Which book? Uh, the, the Sparrow. The Sparrow. The Sparrow? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, we had a long email correspondence, myself mm-hmm. and Maria. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I liked it, actually. I really liked it. She's actually fun to talk to. She's a scream. I don't know mm-hmm. if you've... Yeah. I've never met her. But George, you said yeah, you I was just with her oh uh, a month or so ago uh-huh. at meetings in Padua in Italy, right? To close the Galileo year, she oh, was right. there. You know, she's done this wonderful book on the Galileo's daughters. No, no, no. You're thinking of so David Sobel. Oh yeah, who are oh, we right. talking about? Oh yeah, I'm sorry. Mary right. Doria Russell. Confusing at all? Right. I don't hang out with many ladies, so I get them all confused. <laughs> we all look alike, right? That's true, guy. Why did I slip into? You're all just ladies. That's why I'm here to keep you honest. Forgive me, Lord. All of this is getting recorded, you know. That's right. We're in big trouble. (laughs) I slip right over. You know, I'm. I'm, Well, I've I've so been looking forward to this, and I'm just thrilled that we could get you together. Um, I've been steeped in both of your writings for a few days, and I just want to ask you before. Oh dear, don't worry. I want to ask you before we start. Are you are you familiar with my program? Or do you have any questions for me? No. I'm, I'm okay. not, actually, because I spend most of the time in Europe mm-hmm. at this point. Okay. So, sad to say. All right. Well, we have um, – it, it's, it's been a great adventure, you know, starting a program about religion, uh, understood expansively on public radio and treated intelligently. And our listeners are just all across the spectrum. I mean, we have many devout Catholics and devout Christians and Jews and Muslims, and also lots of atheists and agnostics who listen. Mm -hmm. And I will just say that I share with you uh, the fact that I don't take as a premise that science and religion, uh, that there's any hostility or that that there's even a debate um, 
that's <laughs> and so we we're not going to start with that and we we will not talk about Richard Dawkins. I just want to really <laughs> explore, you know, not uh not have to talk about this in the abstract about whether these things can be reconciled in a life. Um but well, just talk about you, how you do it. How, you're, you're, you you're ruining a game we had. We we're going to put out a yes, an interview bingo and all the times, you know, Richard Dawkins or Galileo came up, we'd put a little yeah. plot there and talk well, about the shouts bingo. I, we may mention Galileo, <laughs> but only briefly, all right? Fair enough. <laughs> um, I think that's it. Um, I want you to say, is it Consolmagno? Consolmagno. Okay. And you are brother guy. How do, would brother you say, guy is do, easier, yeah. Is, do you say brother guy rather than brother Consolmagno and father Yeah, coined? just because Consolmagno is really George. tough for me. So. Yeah, okay. And the same for me, Father George father or George. George. All right. My mother called me George when I behaved myself growing up. <laughs> and I grew up not knowing my name, so I prefer <laughs> to hear Okay, well, how about this? When you're doing well in this interview, <clears throat> I'll call you George, and that will be my signal. You're doing oh, okay, a good job. that I'm doing okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, so we have, we should start. Uh, Chris, I'm just talking to my producer behind the glass. Do you need uh, any levels? Are we okay? I think we're good, yeah. All right, well, let's jump in. Um, I'd like to uh, ask each of you, first of all, just a little bit of... Um, a little bit about how you, where you came from and got into this. And I, I, I think I know a little bit more about Brother Guy just from a lot of the autobiographical writing you've done. But so let's start with, uh, with Father George. Um, you entered the Jesuit order when you were 18. Is that right? Where did you grow up? That's correct. Mm-hmm. I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland, went uh-huh. to a Jesuit high school. Okay. They threw out the fishing net. I was 18. I didn't know any better. So I became a Jesuit. <laughs> All right. Were, were you also a good student of science and interested in science at, at an oh, early age? Oh, you'll have to talk to my teachers about that. Yeah, I did like science through mm-hmm. high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I did reasonably well at it. Mm-hmm. But it was only... I did my college education as a Jesuit. So it was only then that I did my um, bachelor's degree in mathematics, actually. And had an interest in astronomy. So mm-hmm. that's how it all began. And you became captivated by that at some point. I did. Mm-hmm. I did. I mean, it's, it's a, a bit of a strange story because the, the one that really turned me on to astronomy was my teacher of ancient Greek and Latin literature, mm-hmm. uh, who was also an amateur astronomer, Father Hain Martin, who taught me when I was, what, 20, 21 years old. And he would come into class and start teaching us the Greek odes. And he was so enthusiastic, he even danced to them. <laughs> but he used to scratch his head. I think he died of lead poisoning. He scratched his head with a pencil and say, Gentlemen, do you realize that tomorrow is the beginning of spring? Do you know what that means? And of course, we didn't. Right. So he'd go to the blackboard and he'd trace the ecliptic and the celestial equator and so one day he called me in and he said, every time I get distracted and talk about astronomy, you're sitting on the edge of your chair with your eyeballs sticking out. Huh. I said, Father, I love it. <laughs> and he said, well, we got to get you reading. Mm. And then he leaned back in his chair and said, damn it, we have this rule that the only thing you can read, take out of the library, is ancient history and Greek and Latin literature. 
And then he thought for a moment, he said, don't you go into nearby Reading, Pennsylvania to teach catechism to the children? I said, yes. He picked up the phone, called the Reading Public Library, <laughs> and said, I have a young man here. Could he use my library card? Oh, sure, Father Martin, by all means. Just bring him in with, send him in with a little note. And so every week I'd go in, get a couple books, you know, radio signals from Jupiter, all this is back in the, what, 1954, 55. Right. And so that's what really turned me on because it was forbidden fruit and it was good for me. Mm. And so he was, he was really an inspiration, that man. Oh, that's a great Each of story. us have our own history like that, you yeah. know, the serendipity things that happen. Yeah. But enough about me. That's how I got beginning. Yep. Okay. In astronomy. Great. I love that story. Um, okay. So, Brother Guy, now you, you actually were a scientist before you became a Jesuit. Um, you were born in Detroit. Is that right? That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, and did you have a Catholic upbringing also? Yeah. I, my father was Italian, my mother Irish, so it was a very Catholic upbringing. But they were both college educated as well. So it was also a kind of upbringing where it was assumed you'd go to college and probably beyond. And as it happens, you know, all of my siblings have more than one degree. We're sort of all overeducated. Mm-hmm. I was a Sputnik kid. You know, I yeah. started kindergarten the year that Sputnik went up. And so like all boys, it was certainly boys back then in the late 50s and early 60s, you were going to be a scientist. And I got really immersed in that until I went to the Jesuit high school in Detroit in that point, I found out the smartest kids studied Latin and Greek. Hmm. So, like George, I did this uh, side view into ancient Latin, ancient Greek, and thought for a while I'd go into history, maybe journalism, maybe become a lawyer or whatever. But it was my freshman year at Boston College that my best friend was going to MIT, and I discovered that MIT had weekend movies and pinball machines and the world's largest science fiction collection. So to take advantage of all of that, I transferred to MIT, and I had to pick a major I saw as one of the choices, Earth and Planetary Sciences. And I saw planets, and I thought, that must be astronomy. I'll do that. Mm. When I got there, when they finally let me in, I discovered I'd signed up for geology. And boy, if I had known that I was going to be studying rocks, I would never have done that, (laughs) until I discovered that some of the rocks are meteorites. They're rocks that actually come from outer space. Right. And that was so exciting. And the professor I had teaching that, John Lewis, was such a brilliant teacher that I would wake up in the morning and say, oh, I get to go to that class today. It would get me up and get me going. And asteroids Uh, have continued to be your specialty. Asteroids and meteorites Mm -hmm. and basically small bodies in the solar system, how they're put together and how they evolve over time. And then there's, there's a, your story, it has some interesting turns. You, so you continued with, with that. You, you got your degree at MIT. You did postdoctoral work at Harvard and at MIT. And then you went I into the Peace Corps. I also had my doctorate, actually, from Arizona. Okay, Don't want to right, that. all right, all right. If, all right, from Arizona. And, and then important. at some point... You, While um, I was on the faculty. Yeah, that's where oh, George and I first met. in Arizona, okay. In Arizona, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's where you are today, right? That's right, where we're, okay. Right. Um, and then you went into the Peace Corps. And you've said that you couldn't see the point of studying stars when people were dying of hunger. So I want to ask you how you saw the point of studying stars differently when you went back to astronomy after Kenya. Well, it wasn't after Kenya that I went back to astronomy. It was while I was there. I Mm -hmm. I joined the Peace Corps with the attitude, I'll go 
wherever they ask me to go, because they know better than me where they can use me. And after looking at my record, within two months, I was at the University of Nairobi teaching astronomy to graduate <laughs> students. And that was my first clue that maybe there was more to astronomy than just, you know, looking at the stars for your own pleasure. But even deeper than that was that I would go up country every weekend to my fellow Peace Corps volunteers' places, and I had a little telescope with me, and I had a, a package of slides that I would show. Do you realize that there are slide projectors that work on car batteries, hmm. that they had these all over Kenya because there wouldn't be a whole lot of electricity, but people still wanted to see the slides I had of the stars and the planets. Mm -hmm. And everybody in the village would show up for the talks, and everybody in the village would show up to look through my telescope. And they would show exactly the same oohs and ahs looking at the craters of the moon or the, the rings of Saturn, exactly the same as when I would set this up back in Michigan. And it suddenly dawned on me, well, of course. You know, my cat is a very clever cat, but it's never wanted to look through the telescope. Hmm. It's only human beings that have this curiosity to understand what's that up in the sky? How do we fit into that? Who are we? Where do we come from? And this is a hunger that is as deep and as important as a hunger for food. Because if you starve a person in that sense, you're depriving them of their humanity. And being able to feed this, being able to make a person more human or make them welcome into the great adventure of the human race for the 20th century, going to the moon, things like that. Mm -hmm. That was really important to them and really important to everybody I talked to. And suddenly, oh, that's why we do this. Okay. Krista, I have a little story, if, if you'd like to add to what Guy has just been sure. saying. You know, th sort of this contrast, when people are dying from hunger around the world, when uh, earthquakes, for instance, in Haiti, are causing such tragic suffering, how can we afford to spend time and money um, doing astronomical research or anything like that. I have a job of raising money to support uh, an advanced technology telescope that we at the Vatican Observatory have built on a mountaintop here in Arizona. And I recall very well my first job at raising a major gift from a gentleman who was very philanthropic, very Catholic, very religious, from uh, Cleveland, Ohio. And I talked to him, and he said, Father Coyne, he said, Alice and I, his wife, are, you know, we're building a home for unwed mothers down in Peru. We have a mission church. We're trying to get a new roof put on it in uh, Africa, various, you know, enterprises like this. He said, build a telescope? And I looked at him, and he obviously knew that I didn't have a ready answer, and I didn't. He said, well, look, you know, he actually ran what he called a plumbing outfit, but it was an outfit that built the very accurate high-pressure valves for the uh, backpacks of the astronauts. I mean, he was okay. in a high-technology business, so... He said, well, why don't you go away? I'd like you to come back in a couple of weeks and think about this, you know? So I did. I thought and I prayed about it, actually. And I went back. And in my own little pious way, I said to him, I said, Mr. Dunn, the only thing I can say to you is that if all we do exclusively 
is feed the hungry, clothe the naked, put roof over the homeless. If that's all we do, we're all going to be naked. We're all going to be homeless. We're all going to be hungry because we also have to contribute to and help that which truly makes us human beings. We want to sustain ourselves. We want to look nice in clothing. But what really makes us humans is music, the arts, science, Hmm. all of these pursuits to understand the universe and ourselves in it. So he leaned back and he said, my goodness. He said, now I have to go away and think about it. Hmm. And he did. And he eventually became one of our major benefactors. I mean, there's always a tension here, right? Right. Between immediate human needs and helping that which truly makes us humans. That is our self-consciousness, our self-awareness, our communication with one another, the fact that we can enter into love for one another, and all of that is what is the most important. You know, I think that the two of you um, embody... Um, I, I don't even want to say the relationship. I'd say the interrelationship between science and religion across history that has been forgotten or misremembered. The, the way in which, the, you know, Father George, you just asked a number of questions that some of them science, science and theology are asking um, in different ways. Um, you know, you're very much to me in the lineage of Copernicus, Kepler, Galileo, even Darwin, in a sense. I mean, Galileo said, I do not feel obliged to believe that the same God who has endowed us with sense, reason, and intellect has intended us to forego their use. That those classic scientists believe that mm-hmm. understanding the natural world was the best way to understand the mind of its maker. And so, you know, rather than us retelling that that history, which both of you do a lot in your writing— I'd like to really probe how that works in your lives and in your work um, as Jesuits, uh, as members of the research, uh, the Vatican uh, Observatory Research Group, um, and as astronomers. Well, certainly, certainly yeah. you don't you know, try to find the answers to theological questions by looking through a telescope. Right. Or, for that matter, you don't look up in the Bible to find the answer to scientific questions. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not at that level. To me, the difference is that my religion gives me the reasons for wanting to do the science and the confidence that there's something to be found at the end of the day, that the universe is real, that there are laws, that it does make sense, and that it's worth doing just for its own sake. Um, I'll describe when I was a postdoc at, uh, at Harvard I had a wonderful job and a, and a great boss. I was working for Al Cameron, who was one of the brilliant scientists of the 20th century. But no one was keeping in track on me, you know? I, by the end of the year, I should have something done, but on a day-to-day basis, I wasn't punching a, a time clock. And I noticed that I was getting up later every day and going home earlier every day because I was working on a project that wasn't particularly interesting. And after a while, I was wondering, why am I doing this? Mm-hmm. I don't care about this. My religion gives me a reason to care. It reminds me that I'm doing it for the beauty that I'm looking for, that I I, I have a feeling that a theory is a good theory to pursue because it seems beautiful to me, but also that sense of joy. Hmm. And 
you know, there was a time when I was plotting two different numbers on a bunch of meteorites on my computer screen, and it came up with a, with a nice, beautiful curved line, and there was a beautiful correlation between the type of the meteorite and this function and that. There are probably five people in the world who care about that plot. Okay. But it gave me this sense of joy, this sense of rightness, that, wow, I can't wait to tell my friends about it. Mm. And then I realized that's the same sense of joy that you get sometimes in a moment of prayer. That sense of, I'm with the Creator, this is it, this is the way it's supposed to be. You know, you've, you've written, um, as I see the pattern of creation unfolding over and over, complexity from the simplest of ru- rules, beauty from the surprising interplay of basic forces, I begin to get a closer appreciation of the personality of the Creator. Tell me about that personality that you discern. Well, certainly, uh, whoever is responsible for this universe has a great sense of humor. Because whenever you're expecting something, you get what you expect, but from a very, very different angle than the way you were expecting it. You know, the, the center of all humor, where you're constantly being surprised and delighted by the surprise. Also, uh, a creator who loves beauty. It's not enough that the universe makes sense and we can come up with equations for them, but the equations themselves are beautiful. I can remember I was teaching a few years ago at Fordham University. I was teaching Maxwell's equations, and there's a great thing where suddenly you can use Maxwell's equations, Maxwell did this, to come up with the fact that electricity and magnetism acts like a wave that moves at the speed of light. And that's light waves, and that's what makes radio possible. And I remember getting to the point where I had just written that equation down when a student in the front of the class goes, oh my God, it's a wave. <laughs> and he also had gotten that sense of, this is beautiful. This is wonderful. It's, it's that sense of surprise. And, and Father George, um, it's been really, it seems to me that it feels important to you in your writing to stress that science and religion are separate per- pursuits and that science, <clears throat> in fact, is neutral. With, it doesn't have theistic or atheistic implications in and of itself. Correct. But you've also said, um, and you've said, I've, I've, I've never come, <clears throat> sorry, to know God, to see God, to believe in God through doing science, but my scientific investigation has always supported my belief in God in a very real sense. It helps me to pray better. So tell me about that and really illustrate that. I mean, can you give me an example hey, Christa, of prayer of all, infused in, by science? Hmm? Yeah? First of all, I'm impressed. You've, you've suffered by reading some of the things I've written. <laughs> No, I'd like time. to back up a moment okay. because my own personal um, view, as you've you've quoted some of it, is um, is inherited from what I think is a very clear um, misstart in the relationship of science to religious faith, and that right. was at the birth of modern science. Okay, let's put it with. Copernicus through Galileo, Leibniz, Descartes, uh, all the way up through Newton and on. Okay. Yeah. All of those, all of them, I think, I, I can't exclude anyone, were religious believers. Right. Okay. Unfortunately, I mean, we look back on history, but, um, and so you cannot correct it, but you can judge it. They all had a tendency, a tendency to try and establish religious belief 
on the same firm rational basis on which they establish the law of gravity, let's say. So let me give you an example. Newton, for instance, said um, God exists because the universe is not collapsing. He, for Newton, the universe was finite, and it had a finite distribution of mass. Now, Newton knew his law of gravity very well. If you have mass points scattered around, you're eventually, by self-gravity, going to have that collapse because they're not sort of setting one another off in equilibrium. And, and Newton, in his Principia, has a scola on that, proving God's existence through um, a, a rationalistic process, through a scientific process in this case. And um, there is a thesis done by Michael Buckley in which it's called The Origins of Modern Atheism, in which he discusses this and studies this in a great amount of detail, that he sees the origins of modern atheism in this rationalistic, excessively rationalistic approach to religious belief. Hmm. My own take on this is that, um, yes, I do believe that through philosophical reasoning, you can come to um, a, a god. So Thomas Aquinas is five ways, okay? Everything is moving. In order to understand how everything moves, there must be an unmoved mover that started right, it all. Right. So fine, if, if you buy that kind of reasoning, and there are various ways of doing this, but to my mind, what you come to is a philosophical God or a God of the philosophers, I call it. And that's not the God of religious faith. The God of religious faith, okay, is a lover. It's a God who loves and he wishes, he or she, that that love be returned. And so the God that created the universe, okay, is a God of love. The universe is a product of God loving, his love being so, so abundant, so fertile, if you wish, that he had to. Now, the had to has to be interpreted very loosely. Right. Um, had to um, express his love in the creation of the universe. That's why my, my take on the relationship, my personal life, okay, is built upon the following. I'm a scientist. I try and understand the universe. My understanding of the universe does not need God. Okay. Science is completely neutral with respect to is there a God or isn't there a God? And I'll mention Richard Dawkins' name myself now because I once had a conversation with Richard Dawkins in which he said, George, I don't need God. I said, Richard, who told you that I need God? I don't need God in my science. I certainly don't need God. It would be a mistake. But moreover... The, the first relationship, the primary, fundamental relationship with God is one of love. God loved me. And faith is a gift of God's love to me. And I was fortunate enough to be in the circumstances of living in a family that um, established the ambient, the conditions whereby I could accept God's love for me and try to nourish it. 
So the first thing was not that I needed God, but that God came to me. God loved me. And like St. Augustine <clears throat> said, God, I searched you down the highways, down the byways. I searched you day and night. And Augustine says this very clearly in his confessions, but I only found you when I realized that you had found me. Hmm. Of course, after this relationship of love is established, then sure, I express my need for God. But it's not primary. It's not fundamental. I, I think you're also well, suggesting, you also suggest that um, to talk about God in that way, in some sense, is to, to diminish God and, to, and also to diminish the capacity of human intelligence that drives science that, that is connected with God in your mind. That's very true. I think to drag God in, and Guy knows this very well and he can add to it, the famous God of the gaps. I think that's mm -hmm. a very good expression, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. When we find that our science is inadequate to understanding uh, certain events that we observe in the universe, uh, we tend to want to bring in God as a God of explanation, a God of the gaps, okay? Mm -hmm. And we constantly do that. Newton did it, you know? And we're, if we're religious believers, we're constantly tempted to do that. And every time we do it, we're diminishing God and we're diminishing science every time we do it. What you wind up doing is turning God into a pagan God, you know, God of thunder, God of lightning, God of crops. Mm -hmm. And the, the, you know, the, the Romans thought the Christians were atheists because they refused to believe in that kind of God. Right. But, you know, uh, I think we're, whereas in, the, in other centuries, um, the God of the gaps uh, idea worked for people. I really do feel like in the 21st century, we feel that our science will answer all the questions, right? Maybe you're talking about a science of the gaps at this point. <laughs> right, so that's exactly. Yeah, that's long. interesting. That's a good expression, uh -huh. science uh -huh. of the gaps. Uh -huh. yeah. uh, it's funny. There was one of the great conflicts in the Middle Ages between uh, science and philosophers. One of the times when the church came down heavily on a philosopher and, and tried to stop him from philosophizing was... A, uh, a fellow, I fortunately have forgotten his name, who attempted to cast Jesus' horoscope because he was a great believer in astrology and he thought you could explain everything that happened in the life of Jesus by the right. fact that he was born on the 25th of December. Right. And that kind of... Which he wasn't. Which he wasn't on top of everything else. <laughs> he was born, but not on the 25th of December. <laughs> and, but that kind of determinism, that kind of mechanism, still you see going on today with people trying to say, well, it's all uh, in your genes or it's all in right. the chemistry of the brain. And they're missing out on the, the whole joy of being alive. Hmm. I, I'm reminded once I was interviewed by a, a newspaper a magazine that wanted to ask me this sort of question. And, you know, do you find God in your science? And I'm... I, I said, I don't believe in God because of my science. You know, I believe in God because I'm aware of God's presence in my life. Right. And there it was in black and light. I don't believe in God because of my <laughs> science, says. And I had to go back and quietly correct how I'd said yeah. that. You know, I'd like to add a word to this, though. Mm -hmm. um, if I believe in God, and I do, okay, mm -hmm. for reasons that, well, for no reason, as a matter of fact. I believe in God. I really, truly believe I have this relationship of love with God, okay? Mm -hmm. If I do, why shouldn't I use my knowledge of the universe that I know from science, 
Okay, I know it from science. Why don't I say if God created this universe, if, a big I, if, I, if, but I answer that because I am a religious believer, God did create the universe, why don't I use my scientific knowledge to reflect upon what kind of God would make a universe like this that I know as a scientist? Mm -hmm. And when I do, and Guy just expressed it in his own way, I marvel at this magnificent God who did not make a washing machine. He could have. He did not make a car, certainly not a Toyota. Sorry, Toyota. Sorry, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> um, he made a universe that I know as a scientist that has a dynamism to it. It has a future that's not completely determined. That's We know that as scientists. The evolutionary process, if you want to take evolution in a very broad sense of cosmological, physical, chemical, biological evolution, this is a magnificent feature of the universe. So, so I know that... Um that neither one of you is removed from the complexity of life on the ground, right? So I just want to preface my, the question I'm going to ask with that. But I wonder if, um, as astronomers, I mean, in these fields of cosmology and, and astronomy, you know, you're both using words like marvel and beauty, and, and we all, I mean, I, I just have an inkling of what you're talking about from, from my, my pedestrian views of the, of the night sky, right? Um, but I wonder if it's easier... Uh, to be in that place as a as an astronomer than than for example an evolutionary biologist. I mean, you're dealing with the life and death of stars, <laughs> right? And so, so brother Guy, when you said a minute ago we talked about about working with science and and that you do this because of the beauty of the creation. I mean, it, it, we somebody in this conversation, one of us mentioned Haiti as well. So there are these these specters of um, well, the opposite of beauty, right? So um, how do you how do you factor? That in, or does that? I mean, and I, and I don't want to force that, but those are those are not questions of astronomy and cosmology. But where do they come in for well, you? It, it's actually, I think, for me, a, a really important question mm -hmm. because I am originally an Earth scientist, mm -hmm. and so earthquakes and hurricanes are all part of the science that I've studied that explain how the the world, planet Earth, actually works. And yes, it's destructive. And yes. It, it causes you know, this terrible human tragedy. And at the same time, I can marvel at volcanoes, even as I know volcanoes kill people. I can marvel at space images of hurricanes and then also remember that, yeah, that's destroying cities underneath those hurricanes. Mm -hmm. And so we're faced with this all the time. The, uh, but the answer really goes back to what George just said. It, it goes to the free will of the human being. And... The tragedy of Haiti is the tragedy of death. Mm. So you have half a million people dying in a tsunami in, in the South Seas. You have how many thousands of people dying in Haiti. But we all die. Mm. And that death is equally tragic, whether it happens a million at a time or one by one by one, because each of us dies individually. And there isn't any answer to that. And there's never going to be. The, the issue of why is there evil in the world and why is there suffering mm -hmm. is one that we're never going to have a final answer to. The only answer that does work 
is it's part of human freedom. It has something to do with free will. You know, Krista, you mentioned that we're you know, passionately interested in the life and death of stars. Right. And it reminds me of the fact that that's not, um, that's true, um, but it's not adequate. Um, because um, my knowledge of the life and death of stars um, leads me also to know that there's a unity in the whole universe with respect to life and death. If stars were not being born and dying, we would not be here. Right. The sun is a third generation star. It was only after three generations of stars that we had the chemical abundance to make an amoeba, to make primitive life forms, and then through that to come to ourselves. So there is a unity in our scientific knowledge if we search for it. But furthermore, there's a unity in culture in our, you know, I am not a walking brain. I'm not a walking mm. scientist. Mm -hmm. I mean, I may look at it and act like it at times, but there's some people I like. There's some people I don't like. There's some music I like. There's some music I don't like. I mean, human life is so rich with life and death, with suffering, with music and art and love and hatred and, I mean, to limit our human experience to our scientific knowledge is to really impoverish all of us. And I'm afraid many scientists do that. Right. Science is the only way to true and certain knowledge, a kind of scientism. And, and I think that really impoverishes all of human culture. It, it comes out of fear, I think, you know, people just who are afraid of death, afraid of suffering, afraid of the things they can't control. And it leads to a kind of fundamentalism, a science fundamentalism that reflects, I think, religious fundamentalism that also comes out of a fear. And so in both cases, you hope that by following rules, by constraining the universe to the tiny bit that you think you can control, when in fact, the universe is much more exciting than that. But mm. exciting sometimes also means scary and, and painful. All right. Well, also, it's this spectrum of human experience that we've been talking about all the way through this conversation. And, uh, you know, I remember talking to a geneticist who's also an Anglican priest, and he talked about, and he loves genetics, right? He loves that as much as you love your stars and asteroids. And, uh, and yet he said when he was sitting at the bedside of someone who was dying or who was ill— um, that doesn't, you know, that, that, that then what comes into play are the resources and riches and ideas uh, of, of his religious tradition, that, that all of his genetics would fall away in, in those kinds of moments, um, which is not to say that they're meaningless, but as you're saying, it's, we have all of this to address all of what it means to be human. You know, there's many experiences, both in doing science and in living other aspects of human culture, don't take away the mystery, but they do teach us that without death and suffering, there is not life. Mm. So let's take one example from science. If we do not have hurricanes and tornadoes, which unfortunately can kill hundreds and thousands of people, the surface of the earth would not be habitable. Really? We have to... Ex Guy, you correct me because you mm. know more about... what We have to have an exchange of heat. Mm. 
We have to move heat from one part of the earth to the other, you know? We need El Nino and La Nina, or in the long term, the surface of the earth would not be habitable. Is that correct? That's true, and it's also not static. Mm-hmm. That climate will change. Uh, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't care about how we affect the change of climate, but the earth is not a paradise, and we can't stop everything and keep everything exactly the way it is now. Uh, we knew we need to continue to grow and develop. I can't, you know, be a 12-year-old boy all my life. I have to grow up and, you know, put away child parts. And likewise, I can't be a 58-year-old man all my life either. And I wouldn't want to be. Mm. And and mm. speaking of, you know, religious culture, the, certainly um, I don't want to exclude the other religious cultures, but in the Judaic Christian tradition, there's deeply entrenched this notion of uh, death leads to life. So right. in, in the scriptures, it says so many times that if a grain of wheat does not fall in the ground and die, you will not have a crop next year. It, it has to happen that way. That's the way it happens. Uh, who can explain the crucifixion of Jesus? Hmm. The death of Je- Who can explain it? It's a mystery, and yet... We Christians believe that through that death, true life is coming to be. And at the very it's, least, you've, we, we believe that we've got a God who knows what it's about because he's been there and he's done that. And he understands pain and he understands death and, and he can sympathize. So let me, let me ask you this. We were, you know, we were talking a minute ago about not needing God to explain science. But I wonder... <clears throat> Here's another question. I can't figure out if this is the reverse question or something in there. But so, so talking about, say, Christian doctrines like the fall of Genesis or, you know, we're, we're going to be airing this program <clears throat> on Easter weekend, right? The Easter account of death and resurrection. How do they work together with or alongside? How are they informed by? Or do you, do you, do you live them differently because of the work you do with the natural world? Well, certainly being an astronomer and aware of the great possibility that there are other intelligences, other races, makes you then reflect what does the salvation story of the human race mean in a cosmic sense. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean that, ah, well, it didn't really happen. It means that there's more to it than you would have been aware of if you thought that we were the only creatures out there in a relationship to God. So that... I think it allows you to see it in greater depth. It allows you to see that there is more to original sin than just the Adam and Eve story, that the Adam and Eve story is a way of trying to come to grips with it. But in a cosmos that's bigger than that, you can say, ah, what are the essentials? What is the the reality? How is it possible? We can speculate. And that's what science fiction is You mean what are are the essentials in the story? What? In the story, mm-hmm. uh, this, and the essentials are the free will of the actors and the invitation of God. And, of course, in our religious tradition, we've got other stories. We've got the story of the angels, where that, again, recurs, mm. uh, where there is a choice, where there is a free choice, and there is this loving invitation of God. So I would assume if there are ETs anywhere else, that would continue to be the story. Mm. Now, does it mean that they had to have another Jesus and another crucifix I'm not there. I don't know. Right. But right. I suspect it allows us 
to then reflect back on the way it actually did play out in our universe, the way it really did play out with our race, and realize God didn't have to do it that way, but he chose to do it this way with us. And isn't that interesting? Yeah. And so, so this, this sort of evokes a question that I've heard raised in discussions about science and religion. People will say, the difference between science between a scientific perspective and a religious perspective is, is that scientists are open to having to are asking questions and open to having every idea disproved okay and they'll say religion does not have that flexibility um, obviously they've never talked to a theologian <laughs> <laughs> right well that's true or a true religious believer uh-huh well here's, because here's how would you that... exp- how would you explain the, the fact that that's not Look, an faith account? is to have faith is to run an extreme risk. It's not, you know, Rock of Ages is a nice hymn, and I'm not contesting it, but my <laughs> faith is not a rock upon which I stand and, you know, fight against the, uh, the arrows of outrageous fortune, etc. And God ran a risk and still does. Guy was leading towards that. You know, that's original sin, sin of any kind is uh, what God risked. You know, whenever you're starting a friendship or falling in love, you're putting yourself on the line and you're running the risk that the other is going to reject you and maybe reject you in the worst possible way. And, you know, we're all teenagers. We all ran into that one way or another. And throughout our lives, we run into friends who disappoint us. It doesn't mean we stop loving those friends, and when we disappoint them, we hope they could forgive us too, but that's part of being alive, and the alternative is to be a rock, like the old Simon, uh, Simon and Garfunkel song. Right. Yeah. It's not how you live. <laughs> yeah, true. You know, science has some parallels to this. This is kind of risky in its its own way to, to say, but um, other than ourselves, spiritual beings, self-reflected beings, I don't think we can truly attribute freedom to a rock, to a star, to the universe as a whole, right? Mm-hmm. But there is, within our scientific knowledge, there is an analogy to this. I mean, from the very uncertainty principle, okay, quantum mechanics leads us to know that there is built into the universe a certain minimal uncertainty, right? right? Now, I'm I'm not going to call that freedom, but there is, you know, a growing knowledge uh, from the study of nonlinear dynamical systems, chaos and complexity, that even on a macro scale, the universe has in it a certain indeterminism. Now, indeterminism, you cannot equate with freedom, but what I'm trying to say is that um, the, even the physical universe that we examine in, 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 by scientific methods um, is kind of a basis for this whole notion of freedom. It participates at a much lower level in this whole risk of God of making a universe that has these qualities about it that we know as scientists and making human beings, and that's the most serious risk God ran, human beings who can uh, resist God, can turn away from God. 
And all of Judaic Christian history has this. The Jewish people of old, God kept saying, what kind of people have I grown in love with? They keep turning away from me. They keep making idols. I mean, the, the, the theme we're, we're touching on now is very important, both to all of religious culture, I think, but it also has kind of a grain of uh, a small grain of understanding within the universe, the physical universe itself. I know that's kind of maybe far fetched, but I've often seen it that way. And certainly the act of doing science and the act of being a religious believer have these same sorts of parallels. Right. That the science that will be done 200 years from now will look really different from what George and I do, and all of our results will be forgotten. But they couldn't have gotten there without the, the few bricks that we've added to the edifice. Right. And yet we know that our understanding of the universe is always incomplete. And we know our understanding of God is always incomplete. Right. It, so that, you know, the, 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 the classic definition of theology is faith seeking understanding. Right. I've got this faith. Now, what the heck do I do with it? How do I make sense of it? You, um, Brother Guy, have also, uh, you, you have a really interesting um, definition of faith. I mean, it may sound simple, but it, it's something that people have a hard time defining. You've written, Christianity does not start with faith, but with experience. Faith is our reaction to that experience. And, and you also point out that science ultimately does not begin with logic, but with intuition, or at least a lot of science. That's true. You have to experience something before you can react to it. Mm -hmm. And you're always reacting to it with insufficient data. You know, if, if you're going to fall in love and marry somebody, you don't know how it's going to work for the next 50 or 60 years. Right. You have to take that leap. And that's the same way in pursuing a scientific theory, that when you have a great idea, you don't know if after two years you're going to realize, boy, did I make a mistake. I just wasted two years chasing down the wrong path. Though it's never totally a waste, certainly. You could guess wrong, you could guess right, and we all do. So it's this marvelous interplay between our intuition and then our logic. And that's why it's such a human experience. It's something you can never program a computer to do. Right. I'd, li I'd like to hear from both of you about how your take on life, which is very much informed by your science, how that resonates with Catholic theology and tradition in particular. Mm. Oh, that'll be easy. <laughs> how it relates to Catholic or resonates theology with and Catholic. tradition. Like, so I've so, I think, Guy, you wrote somewhere that, that Catholic in intellectual achievement, this is very intriguing, has human fallibility with all the accompanying richness and pathos at its center. Right. Uh, that I, could, I remember when I wrote that, I'm thinking, yeah. oh, it's going to come back and haunt me. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's fascinating. Well, and, and what you were drawing, and you weren't actually talking, you weren't necessarily talking about theology, but the world of literature and art and poetry that, and culture that has been and defined it, it by is that sense, Catholicism. Yeah. It is that sense of not knowing ahead of time where it's going to go, that it's not all pat. And yet, you can approach it intellectually. I think one of the joys of being a Catholic is that we've got this rich intellectual tradition at the same time that we've got, you know, the smells and bells and the hymns and all of the other emotional part that are all responses to the awareness that there is this God and I want to do something about it. I would add just a little note. I mm -hmm. think um, it's exciting to be ignorant. And I think our ignorance in 
pursuing science um, has something to do with this whole idea of the uncertainties and all involved in a relationship of love with God that I call faith. Faith, you know, I one time, I'll give you a story which, uh, very quickly, which says better um, than kind of talking philosophically about this. Mm -hmm. I um, gave a paper at a scientific meeting on the uncertainties in our determination of the age of the universe. There are several methods we use for determining the age of the universe, and there are a degree of uncertainty involved with each of them. Well, whenever I give a—I'm at a scientific conference or so, I'm not dressed as a priest uh, because it just—why? You know, it just right. confuses things. Right. But the circle—I had just given a talk in a church or something. I didn't—so I gave this talk, and I was wearing my roaming collar. So a gentleman stood up, you know, discussion period, question period, and the first thing he said, he, he said, Father— and I trembled at the thought that he had first of all called me father. Mm. But then he proceeded to build upon that. And he said, Father, it must be wonderful that, you know, with all the uncertainties we have in our scientific pursuits, that you have this faith, right. this rock right. of faith to stand upon. So what I did is <clears throat> I took off my roaming collar and faced him down and said, who told you that my faith was kind of a rock upon? I said, every morning I wake up, I, I have my doubts. I have my uncertainties. I have to struggle to help my faith grow because faith is love. Mm. Love in marriage, love in, you know, with friends, love brothers and sisters is not something that's there once and for all and always kind of a rock that gives us support. And so what I want to say is ignorance in doing science creates the excitement of doing science. Hmm. And anyone hmm. who does it knows that discoveries lead to a further ignorance. Hmm. The more you know, the more you know you don't know. And, and you feel the same way, that that's true oh, with well, faith as well. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I, I keep going back to this wonderful phrase that Anne Lamott came out with uh, a few <laughs> years ago. The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. If you're sure about something, then you don't need faith. Oh, it's yeah. when you have the right. doubts right. that that faith kicks in. And that's true in science as well as anything else. Didn't she also when say George's... faith is a verb, not a noun? Oh, very good, yes. <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. What, but, but what George is saying about the, the joy of ignorance, uh, this is, of course, an old tradition that goes back, well, Socrates himself, you know, he says, I'm the wiser than everyone else because I know I don't know. And uh, Nicholas of Cusa, who wrote about extraterrestrial beings in the 14th century, mm -hmm. did so in a book that basically is the book of ignorance is, is one way of translating the title. Really? Yeah. I mean, in modern times, I mean, we have examples of it in science down through history, but take just in most recent times, the past two decades, okay? We knew the universe was expanding. We marveled at the fact that it was expanding at just such a rate that it was on the borderline of expanding forever or collapsing, okay, right on right. the borderline. Right. Now, that itself is a marvel of all the possibilities expanding so fast at the beginning 
that nothing could come to be. There could be no self-gravity, so the galaxies and stars formed, or expanding so slowly that it collapsed in upon itself almost as soon as it began to expand. Of all those possibilities, it was right on the edge. So we were delighted with that and marveled at that until within the past at most 10 years, I suppose, with very accurate observations of distant quasars, we now know very well that the universe is not only expanding, but it's accelerating in its expansion. To the point where 75% of the universe we now calculate is made up of stuff we didn't even know existed <laughs> right, 10 years right, ago. Right. How much, how more ignorant can you be? So, <laughs> What and yet you're right, this, it's thrilling, isn't it? They, it is. Yeah. It is because we call it dark energy. Right, which is amazing. It's the, just the, You know the, why the, we call it words. dark energy? Because why? our brains are dark. <laughs> <laughs> We're in the dark about it. Uh, uh, let, let me ask you this. I mean, that's yeah. as ignorant as you can get, okay? Yeah. But, I mean, it challenges gravity, which right. is very fundamental to all of our understanding, always has been since Newton. But I think you're saying that ignorance in this sense is something to take delight in. Educated ignorance. Yeah, the awareness mm -hmm. that we don't yes, know. Yes, right, yes, yes, right. yes. You know, um, if we had all the answers, boy, we would have nothing left to do. It would mm -hmm. be a, a terrible universe. Now, now is it right? Um, so, Father George, were you the head of the Vatican Observatory when you, Guy, went to originally came there? Is that true? That's right. That's okay. correct. Okay. Yeah. Now, and he's held it against me ever since. <laughs> <laughs> and is it also right that all the cosmologists and astronomers of the Vatican Observatory Research Group are Jesuits? With one exception. There is a diocesan priest, Alessandro Omizzolo, mm -hmm. who works in uh, the study of quasars and galaxy clusters. Okay. He's a diocesan priest. So what is that about? What is it about Jesuits well, and astronomy and... Part of it is simply the, the history. If you're going to have a bunch of guys living together in one community, it's good to have them all under a common rule so that uh, they basically know how to live in a community together and who's in charge and who's going to pay the bills. The observatory was founded in its modern form in, what, 1891? 1891. So this really is, was, became part of the, the identity of the Jesuit order, you're saying? This. No. Uh, you must know that history, his, history is history. So the first director of the Vatican Observatory at its formal founding in 1891 was a Barnabite priest. Okay. There was an Oratorian priest, an Augustinian priest. There were no Jesuits on the staff at that time. It was only in 1906 that... The Pope asked the boss of the Jesuits to assign Jesuits to staff the observatory. Okay. And basically, and the, I think it was 1930s before the entire observatory was just handed over to the Jesuits. That's correct, yeah. So it's entrusted to us now. I mean, there's a long tradition. I, I'm proud of it. Uh, from the 15... 1580s or so in there of a group of renowned mathematicians, scientists, if you wish, astronomers, because everybody did everything in science in those days, um, within about 40 years after the founding of the Jesuits at the Roman College in downtown Rome. The Jesuits there were the first to corroborate Galileo's telescopic observations mm. to say that, yes, what Galileo saw we see with our own telescope, etc. Some of them were friends of Galileo's, some not so friendly, by the way, but nonetheless. Like any other group. 
Uh, Christopher right. Clavius has a crater in the moon named for him. You probably know it from the movie 2001, sure. The Space Odyssey. Right, and he mapped, and, he mapped the lunar surface, is that right? Uh, he didn't map the surface. Uh, it was another Jesuit who did that. Okay. But the, the interesting thing about Clavius is he was involved in the reform of the calendar in the 1580s. Yes, right. And he wrote a letter of recommendation for a very young Galileo who was looking for a teaching job. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, By the way, speaking of Jesuits on the moon, there are about 26 uh, features on the moon, I believe, maybe very slightly, uh, named for Jesuit scientists of those days. And that's um, easy because it was a Jesuit who made the map and stuck the right. names. Oh, yeah, okay. Very and, easy to do. Well, I did know that. People, and no, ask me, uh, uh-huh. people ask me, Krista, well, how many Jesuits are on the moon? I say, I think there are about 26. There are another 126 we'd like to send there, but we can't get permission. <laughs> Now, don't both of you have asteroids named after you? Is that right? It's it's very embarrassing. I know of four Jesuits who have asteroids named for them. One is our founder, Loyola. Uh One is our greatest saint, uh, Xavier. And the other two are George and me. But that's because we've got friends who... Uh-huh. And I hardly know what an asteroid is, but Guy (laughs) has been instructing me. Well, how does that feel to have an asteroid named after you? Uh, it was really fun to tell my dad. You know, I'm not giving him grandkids, but at least he's got something with a family name. <laughs> something more enduring. <laughs> well, I don't know about yeah. that. As long as it's not the one that comes and hits the earth, we're in yeah. good shape. You know, Father George, you, you wrote this, which I thought was very intriguing, that a Jesuit's vocation is to travel. Our study is our worship. Our charism is to find God in all things. Yeah, that's very Ignatian, by the way. Ignatius founded the Jesuits, Mm -hmm. um, and one of his principal um, spiritual, um, let's call it uh, slogan, but it's more than a slogan, was precisely what you said, finding God in all things. Mm. So I, I, I really do. I find God in doing my science. Now, look, when I'm at the telescope, I'm not kneeling down and praying. I'm doing my work as a scientist. But at the end of the day, I really say, you know, I'm trying to understand the universe that God created. And as I'm coming to understand it, it surely will help me to come to a further passion, a further understanding of, of the God who loves me and whom I'm trying to grow in love with. Ignatius, that finding God in all things has to be seen against the historical founding of the Jesuits. Ignatius, this is uh, the Reformation period. Christianity is breaking up. Right. I know the right. Protestant congregations are growing. And Ignatius founds this religious order um, saying to the popes that I want to found a monastic order but a different kind of monastic order than the Carthusians, the Benedictines, the Franciscans, the Dominicans. They're orders that already, many of them for many centuries, already in existence. Ignatius fought. He had a very difficult time establishing this principle that my, the Jesuits will be monks, but they will not have cells in a monastery building their cell, their monastic cell, is to be where they are in the classroom, in the laboratory, at a telescope, in a nursing home, helping people, uh, that their cell was to be there where they were working. In other words, they were to find God where they were in their apostolic work. And there is this and, history, this connection between Jesuits and exploration, right? 
historically. There is, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Part of the history is so simply they, they that the first... So they took that on in an expansive yeah. way. <laughs> right. Well, the first 10 Jesuits all met at the University of Paris, so they started out by being scholars. Mm-hmm. And then they were asked to start schools because they had these guys who all happened to be scholars and they needed schools. Here's an obvious place to plug them in. But it meant that there was a great mixture of Jesuits from various areas teaching and starting schools in places where they didn't necessarily grow up. So they also became a very international order. Right. I want to pat ourselves on the back. You you led me into this, Krista, but yes, the early Jesuits were um, explorers. Mm -hmm. They really set out to explore the world. And so we're sitting here, Guy, in the great state of Arizona, where one of our great state heroes is Father Eusebio Kino, a Jesuit priest, who explored all of this part of Arizona, what Mm. we now call Sonora. He was the first to discover that Baja California was not an island, but a peninsula. Mm. He was the first to really introduce in any serious and lasting way the cattle industry to Arizona. The founder of Brazil, Anchieta, is a Jesuit. Mm. Okay. Mm -hmm. There happen to be at least three Jesuits in the capital rotunda. Each state has two, two of their state heroes there. I know that Marquette is there, Kino is there, and I think there's one other. Now, is, is it that right that you applied dismant. to go into astronaut training at one point, Father George? I did. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I did. But I didn't last very long because I wear eyeglasses. Oh, Okay. And that was that's a story in itself, but not mm. very um, pertinent to what we. Yeah, all right, all I right. was in the astronaut program for a very short time. All right. Yeah. Um, just I, this this is fun. It's something else, um, especially in, in your writings, brother Guy. There's um, you describe how the actually the building in which the Vatican Observatory is housed, it, just that arc that piece of architecture, that piece of land tells some of this story of. The, relation, the drama of the relationship between church and science across the centuries. Well, there's, there's a, whole, uh, a whole history for the, uh, the gardens in Castel Gandolfo, where our headquarters is. Right. We moved out there, of course, in the 1930s, so the observatory had a history before we were there, and of course we also have our telescope in Arizona. But these gardens are the papal gardens. They've been part of the Pope's summer home going back to uh, quite a ways. But the original area, it's a beautiful area by Lake Albano, was originally the site of a palace of the Emperor Domitian. Mm -hmm. And the Roman Emperor around the year 100, he was the first Roman Emperor to systematically persecute Christians, and his palace became the Pope's Gardens. (laughs) Now, when the Barberini family got a hold of the Castel Gandolfo in the 1400s or so, um, in the late 1500s, Maffeo Barberini built a summer home, which has eventually become the summer home of popes. Maffeo Barberini became Pope Urban VIII, okay. who was, of course, the pope who called in Galileo. And his summer home now has two telescopes on the roof, thanks to you know, the Galileo. The final bit is that there is a plaque on this, uh, in, in, in this home dedicated to Clement XIV, who was the pope who, from this place, actually wrote the writ that stopped the Jesuit order from existing for 46 years. <laughs> and uh, for about 75 years, right next to that plaque was a Jesuit community. 
So the idea is what goes around comes around. <laughs> oh, history always has its jokes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I guess that's that's that personality of God with a sense of humor that you mentioned Absolutely. earlier on. So um, I think we should talk about Galileo just for a moment since since you are astronomers and in, in, in his l- legacy and lineage. Um, I, I, obviously, it's a huge story, but um, Brother Guy, you've written in particular, well, but you've both written about just how that story, again, there's a lot about that that we have misremembered or that has not been told. And you know, you, you've talked about how um, when you tell the whole story, the Catholic Church still doesn't come out looking great, but not necessarily for the reasons people think of immediately. So would you like to tell a little bit of how you would fill in people's imaginations about that story? This is, of course, a, a task I get a lot because mm-hmm. George is the expert, so I'm the one who's free <laughs> to give the glib answers because he knows all the, the background and the detail. Okay. I'll let him correct me as all I right. go. All right, okay. But basically... I I love the Galileo story because Galileo is such a familiar figure when you know astronomers that you can see so many people you know as astronomers doing what Galileo did. You can understand exactly how he got into the mess he got in and and how he got out in a sense. Mm -hmm. Galileo was a great friend of the church and of popes. He considered himself a very devout Catholic all his life before, during, and after the trial. There are many ways he could have you know, bypassed the whole thing, snuck out of the country and, and never looked back. And he didn't do that. He didn't want to do that. He submitted all of his works to the church authorities for approval. They were all approved, including the one that they got in trouble for. And, <laughs> you know, it, it, you read some of the things that uh, they people had wrote in honor of his book. They all had the imprimatur. Uh-huh. It's clear that he was sort of a, you know, a Teflon golden boy most of his life where even when people saying the same thing that he said were getting into trouble, he didn't. Mm-hmm. That all, always exceptions were made for him. Until 1632, suddenly the roof caves in on him. He doesn't understand why. No one can, reading in the history nowadays can figure out exactly why, though there's lots of different theories. You know, if you go to Amazon.com, you can find easily 50 books about Galileo, and they're all giving you a different story. Right. So I don't know what the truth is. But... Clearly, he was put on trial. The trial was unfair. The verdict that was read had nothing to do with what they talked about at the trial. And then within a year, he's back home doing his own thing and basically living a relatively comfortable life again. So you're left scratching your head wondering, first of all, why did that happen to Galileo? Mm -hmm. And secondly, why is it that suddenly 400 years later, it's the symbol of the clash between science right, and religion, right. when it certainly wasn't at the time? Galileo right. didn't see it that way. Yeah, yeah never has been. Yeah. Uh, a small correction, the imprimatur, he did have an imprimatur in the dialogue, but he kind of got it by sneaky means. <laughs> he, he, went to, uh, he went to Northern Europe and et cetera, et cetera, had it first published. But we needn't go into that. He did sort of uh, – it's one of the things that got per- Urban VIII a bit irate. Okay, that well, that's when interesting. he found out he had uh, – the thing I'd like to say about Galileo is yes. something that is not said very often and most people don't really um, know much about, um, but I think for our day, the science-religion uh, uh, dialogue is very important. Galileo anticipated by at least 300 years what the Catholic Church, um, the Anglicans, etc., um, 
teach about the interpretation of Scripture. Galileo wrote uh, two letters, they're really um, treaties, to the Duchess Christina of the Medici family and to a close friend of his, uh, Benedetti, um, uh, Benedetto, about the interpretation of Scripture. And what he essentially said, he, he went into a great deal of detail for his time to read those treaties is marvelous. Mm-hmm. But what he essentially said is given an acute phrase that he used, but he was quoting a cardinal, believe it or not, Cardinal Baronio. And what he said is that scripture is written to teach us how to go to heaven and not how the heavens go. Right. <laughs> and what he was, I mean... That's a cute little phrase that sums it up. Galileo went into a great deal of detail about the interpretation of Scripture. In general, he anticipated the whole movement towards interpreting Scripture according to the literary genre, form criticism. You have to study the ancient languages in which it was interpreted. Um, I say all this. I may alienate some of your listeners, but... I think in modern American society, and it is contagious, the fundamentalist approach to the interpretation of scriptures is a plague. It's Mm. a plague upon society. Mm. if, If there is a conflict between interpreting scientifically the origins, the evolution, and the age of the universe... If there is a conflict between that and what Scripture says, it's because we don't know how to interpret Scripture. Hmm. This there is, not a... is no science in Scripture. Zero. Right. It's not, it wasn't isn't. written as a scientific but, textbook well, or a book about I've, the I've written world. a scientific textbook, and believe me, it's not Scripture. Right. But more to the point, it's 20 years old, and it's way out of date. Hmm. You take science books, and you toss them away after right. five years. Right. I mean— Newton and Galileo wrote wonderful books, mm. but no scientist learns their science from reading Newton and Galileo. Okay. That shows that, you know, you still read the Bible, you still read Plato, you still read Shakespeare. Those are a different kind of literature mm. than a science book. Mm. That's correct. Mm. The other interesting thing about the whole Galileo affair is you read scripture, you read the description of, say, Genesis 1, and it's a flat world with a dome over it and water above and below the dome, and it, right. it's... it's Babylonian science, basically. Nobody believed that by the time of Christ. Right. And certainly nobody believed that in the Roman times. There was no Galileo trial or crisis when people moved from a flat earth to a Ptolemaic or Aristotelian earth. Mm -hmm. Um, The closest we can come is a wonderful phrase that Augustine wrote in the year 400 in a book on the interpretation of Genesis that said, it's a scandal if a Christian tries to interpret the Bible this way and says things that everybody else knows is nonsense. It diminishes religious faith, religious culture. Right. And it diminishes diminishes the Bible. And my understanding is that started to happen perhaps around the time of the printing press, the Reformation. Uh, These things became popularized without all the sophisticated analysis that was actually part of Christian tradition. Oddly enough, I think it really kicked in around the 1960s. (laughs) Because this kind of literalism, um, you know, was was certainly debated in the Enlightenment years, but it wasn't 
a really big part of culture until the culture wars of the 60s. Hmm. I think, yeah. And part of it is that we live in this technical culture where people want to read everything as if it was the owner's manual to a Volkswagen. Right. And that's the only kind of truth that they're familiar with. They don't understand that truth sometimes can only be expressed in poetry because it's too big for words. Mm. Let me uh, Mm -hmm. give you a brief conversation I had, which... uh, brings to the point this. This is a PhD in physics who really knew quite well his cosmology and all, but he was also a, um, a, a, of a fundamentalist sect and believed uh, the stories of Genesis to be a scientific presentation of uh, the origins of the universe. So here is the guy I'm talking to. And I said to him, I said, Isaac, if you interpret Genesis Um, strictly scientifically, um, God made light on the first day. He made the sun and the stars on the fourth day. Where in God's name, if I may put it that way, did the light come from on the first day? Because all light comes, electromagnetic radiation comes from stars, and the sun is one of them, right? Mm -hmm. You know what he said to me, knowing his physics? That was the cosmic background radiation, <laughs> which was discovered in the 19, early 1960s. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and then I tried to tell him, I said, you know, I, it's a beautiful story, the book of Genesis, but it's a story and it's telling a truth. Science isn't the only way. This is a beautiful story. The reason why we have light on the first day is the Jewish people had come back from slavery where they didn't have time to think other than about God as the one who loved them and delivered them from slavery in Egypt to the land of milk and honey. And now they have time to lay back and think about this God. They look at the universe and they say the same God that made the universe is the God who loves us. Hmm. So let's tell a story about that. Hmm. So, of course, God needs light to set up the stage. Then he gets some dirt and some water and some plants and some crawling creatures and some mammals that stand up. And finally, he brings on Adam and Eve. So to them, this story is saying God loved the human being so much that the human being is very important in God's act of creation. It's very central. And that's That's the the story that's being told. And Mm -hmm. that's in such great contrast to what everybody else was saying, that uh, the universe was chaos and human beings— were made by accident and, you know, get out of the way of, of the God of thunder and the God of lightning. Right. right. You know, um, I've actually spoken with more physicists across the years than astronomers. Um, and now you, I know mathematics is Lucky at the heart you. of it. Well, but, so, you know, but coming back to Galileo, um, you know, he said mathematics is the language in, in which the universe is written. And, uh and I know um, physicists in particular talk a lot about the beauty and elegance of mathematics. And um, it, it strikes me, I know that's important to both of you too, but it strikes me that as astronomers, there's also this visual aspect to what you do. And I wonder, um, and I'm well, just curious all, about that. If, if there, there are other kinds, it, yeah. It, you have to remember that to Galileo, mathematics meant primarily geometry. Right. So it so was, it was visual, visual and spatial, science. yes. Uh-huh. Uh, secondly, what he was doing by saying that was controversial. 
precisely because Aristotle had tried to back away from using too much mathematics in science for the very good reason that before him, people were trying to explain everything in terms of magic numbers. Mm. There could only be seven okay. planets because of the numbers of, okay. of solid spheres and things like that. So, you know, everything is a reaction against what came before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The third and most wonderful thing was that after the Galileo affair and before Galileo, people had been using the physical world as a model of the metaphysical world, that you have the spheres of the planets representing the spheres Kepler of Kepler in particular, yeah. And Kepler, Kepler was, was very, very guilty of this. The church said you couldn't do that anymore, and you certainly couldn't do that with the, Kepler uh, the, the Copernican system, which was quite true. So the study of astronomy, including the study of the Copernican system, continued in Catholic schools, the Jesuit schools, but no longer in the natural history classroom or the natural philosophy classroom. Instead, it was in the mathematics classroom. And this, you know, this historical accident has all given uh, great impetus to using mathematics as a way of describing the universe. Right. But it's certainly not the only way to describe it. As I said, I come from an earth science background. And while there's a lot of places where we can put measures and write equations, an awful lot of it is still being able to look at a road cut and saying, these layers came before those layers, and I can see it. Mm -hmm. And either you see it or you don't. There's a, a geologist friend of mine who came back from one of these trips saying, you know, if I hadn't believed it, I'd have never seen it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, true. You, you also used um, you know. in, uh, the Van Gogh painting in a way that, uh, as a... As an illustration of, of sometimes what's lacking in the way we talk about science and religion. And that just struck me also because that's, again, visual. It's something you can see. It is. See. And it reminds us that you know, Van Gogh, when he's drawing stars, is not trying to give us the same information that George is trying to get when he's taking spectra of the stars with the mm -hmm. telescope. Mm -hmm. But he is trying to communicate information. And there's more information in those stars than what's in the spectrum. <laughs> but there's plenty of information in the spectrum, as well as what's in Van Gogh. Right. You know, my take on mathematics, and I think it's faithful to what Galileo said. I mean, the, the language of, of the universe is mathematics. Language is a tool, right? It's a tool mm. whereby we express to one another what we know, etc. To me, mathematics is a tool um, to understand, always in a limited way, mathematics you know, abstracts from a lot of the beauty, a lot of the complication of the real world. But it is an attempt to understand the beauty of the world. It's a tool whereby, in a limited way, we try to come to an understanding of the beauty. It doesn't dissociate itself from the beauty. Right, right. It tries to abstract in order to further understand the beauty. And I think I can't say... I can't talk to Galileo now, but I think that was the idea that Galileo had when he, you know, that famous phrase of mathematics is the language of the universe. Mm -hmm. We have a mathematician on our staff among the dozen Jesuits, and he's pointed out this marvelous argument the mathematicians have. Is a mathematical truth discovered or invented? You know, was it there before a mathematician realized it, or is it something that is a product of the human don't, mind? Don't most people think it's... It's discovered? 
Um, there's an awful lot oh. that's invented too. Uh-huh. Depends on what you mean by post. It's 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 a classical and still enduring debate as to whether mathematics is intrinsic to the universe or whether the human brain is such that it it uh, imposes is too strong a word imposes mathematical structure on the universe. Well, and so one of the or, issues one yeah. of the issues we always have as scientists when mm-hmm. we're trying to extract. A, a generalization from the data is, is the generalization really there or is it just us finding faces in the clouds? And sometimes it turns out that uh, we get fooled. And we see did, did Einstein discover or invent the laws of physics? He discovered them, didn't he? Oh, I, you know, I, this is debatable, Krista. <laughs> because, because of course, debatable. his laws of physics aren't the final answer. All right. And we're never going to have a final answer. Right. But the last thing we want to do is make God a mathematician. Okay. I mean, that, that's even worse than making God an engineer, <laughs> like intelligent design movement does, Okay. right? Well, tell me what you mean by that. Well, I mean that, you know, the intelligent design movement says that there are these certain No, no, biological... I know that. But when you say okay. the last thing we want to do is make God a mathematician. A mathematician, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, God is a God of love. Mathematics is, you know, is not the language of love. Well, depends if you're a mathematician or not. I mean, it's the language of discovering who is Miss America by how <laughs> wide is this part of her body and how wide is that part. But that doesn't work, right. I'll, I'll, I'll put it in a different way. All right. Um, I'm aware that we have image, five minutes, so I, right. I... But this is all, this is wonderful, but yeah, let's... Okay. This is an image that hit me one time, and I think... Other people have resonated. When I was a little kid, nine years old, I remember a rainy Sunday afternoon, and you couldn't go out to play, and you're stuck in the house, and my mom came out with a deck of cards and dealt them out, and we played rummy together. Now, my mom can beat me in cards because I'm nine years old. That wasn't the point of the game. The point of the game was this was her way of telling me she loved me in a way that she couldn't just say, you know, son, I love you because I'm nine years old. I'm going to squirm and go, oh, mom, and run away. <laughs> in a way, the be, being able to do science and come to an intimate knowledge of creation is God's way of playing with us. <laughs> and it's that kind of play that is one way that God tells us how he loves us. So is it invented? It's as invented as the card game. But is it an act of love? It's as much an act of love as the card game. I like that. Playing games with God. Yeah, or God playing games with us. That's true. Made a universe that has that fascinating attraction about it, which doing science to me is a search for God. And I'll never have the final answers because the universe participates in the mystery of God. If we knew it all, I'd sit on the palm tree with my gin and tonic and just let the world go by. <laughs> Which is not a bad thing to do every now and then. Well, every now and then, but it get kind of boring. Huh? Oh, you know, this has been a fantastic conversation, and I, I want to thank both of you so much. I'm so glad I could get you together in the same room as well. 
Thanks for having Fine, us. Fine, Krista. Good talking to it's you. And keep your snow boots handy there. All right. You All know, right. I, I have a book coming out, which is called Einstein's God, and it's centered around 10 of my conversations with scientists. I might send oh. you a copy of that. Thank is, you. Oh, do. Yeah. Okay. I'd enjoy that. I will. It's we not will. in Latin, is it? It's not in Latin, no. Okay. No. But uh, I've, <laughs> I've had both of you on my radar for a long time, and I know my listeners are going to love uh, getting to know you. So thank you. Okay. Okay, Chris, all the best. All right, and and if I can plug, we have a book on the Vatican Observatory, The Heavens Proclaim. Uh, I think, yeah, I think I have all those books, and we will absolutely tell people, uh, you know, some several of the things you've both written. So is that Fantastic. the one you want? Is that the one that you... Well, that's the most current one, probably the most approachable. Yeah, yeah no, I have that. Okay, great. great. And we will be in touch about when this is going to air and if there are some follow-up questions. So I think, Nancy, you've been talking to Nancy. Yep. So right. um, thank you again. Okay, Krista. Okay, thanks all right. for having us. Bye, bye for bye. now. Bye bye. Okay, that did go by. Yes. Good guy. I don't think Good either guy. of us is going to be excommunicated for that one. I don't think so. I didn't fall into any big traps. Good. Right. She's great.